Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening. My name is Alex Messina. I'm Manager Strategy and Planning here at State Library. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the Policy Pitch, a joint initiative of State Library Victoria and Grattan Institute. This seminar is held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders and to the elders of other communities who may be here this evening. I'd like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, Dr. Amanda Kenny, Dr. Hal Swereson, and Dr. Stephen Duckett, Grattan Institute members and staff, and friends of the library. I'm delighted to be here this evening to welcome you to this very important discussion. Tonight, our panel of experts will examine the state of play for primary care in Australia and options and recommendations for the future. Primary care services aim to promote health and well-being, prevent illness, treat a range of conditions, assist people to rehabilitate and recover, and support people to live at home. Stronger, more efficient primary care has huge benefits for our society. Grattan Institute recently published a report titled Mapping Primary Care in Australia, which argued that our primary care policy needs an overhaul to ensure all Australians, especially poor and the elderly, get the best possible health care. The report shows that many poorer Australians can't afford to go to a GP when they need to or a dentist when they should while people in rural and remote areas find it too hard to get to a pharmacist or a medical specialist. I'm sure everyone here is keen to hear how we can ensure that no one is left behind in primary care. <laughs> Leading tonight's discussion is Dr. Stephen Duckett. Stephen is director of the health program at Grattan Institute. He has a reputation for creativity, ev evidence-based innovation and reform in areas ranging from the introduction of activity-based funding for hospitals to new systems of accountability for the safety of hospital care. Joining Stephen are our panellists, Amanda Kenny, Professor of Rural and Regional Nursing, and Hal Swereson, a Fellow in the Health Program at Grattan Institute. Please make them all welcome. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure to uh, introduce this uh, session. Last week, we released our report on mapping uh, primary care, and the aim of that report was to try and show how complex the primary care system is, that it encompasses a wide range of areas. We covered a range of aspects of primary care in that, in that report, not only primary, care, primary medical care, but also we looked at specialist services such as alcohol and drug services. We also, of course, looked at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And here we showed, yet again, the disadvantage that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face. We, we remember again that uh, the life expectancy for Indigenous Australians is 10 years shorter than it is for non-Indigenous Australians. So I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and remember, as we say that, that disadvantage that is still being suffered. <laughs> So it's my pleasure to, first of all, uh, introduce uh, Hal Swereson. Hal 
uh, has worked in the health industry for a long time. He's been a, a Dean of Health Sciences at La Trobe University. He's worked for Commonwealth and state governments and uh, he's been at Grattan Institute for about six years now and uh, led this mapping report. So welcome, Hal. Thanks, Stephen. It's a great pleasure to be here. And let me also um, thank you all for coming out tonight on a, such a lovely Melbourne summer's, no, winter's night. Um, and I too want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, their elders past, present and emerging. Um, as Stephen said, we, re we released our report on uh, primary care in Australia last week, and it summarises the scope uh, of primary care services and the major issues we think need to be addressed. <clears throat> now, tonight I'm going to summarise um, this report. It is, of course, like all Grattan reports, a must-read. Depending on your taste, it's better than Fifty Shades of Grey, but not as good as To Kill a Mockingbird. We'll see what you think when you've had a look at it. Um, I want to thank all the people who worked on the report, particularly the unsung layout and editorial uh, and production staff. They found the pictures and, uh, like this one, and fixed the clumsy sentences and got the figures right, or at least I hope they have. Um, and tonight I'm going to summarise what we had to say uh, and then make some broader reflections about primary care. And I'm going to do this unusually for me, not by death by PowerPoint slides, but um, I'm going to tell the story of the report a bit and, uh, and some uh, of the issue, and then reflect on some of the issues in relation to primary care. Uh, so each year in primary care nationally, we spend about $50 billion <coughs> on 400 million services provided by about 20,000 agencies that make up um, this diverse and complex sector. General practice and pharmacy are the most visible services, uh, and most people use them every year, but there are other important services as well, including allied health, dental, community health, indigenous health, and women's health services, which we wanted to include in the report to make the point that um, really these services are more than just medical services, and that, uh, as you'll see, as you'll hear when I go through, there's a complexity which has emerged over the last three generations. The pri these primary care services are usually our first point of call for um, health services and a pathway to specialist services including hospitals, residential care, specialist medical practitioners, mental health and alcohol and drug services. Just about all of us use one or more of these services every year. Um, so the short version of the report is the primary care central to the Australian health system, but there are a number of serious issues that need to be addressed. And we, of course, being Grattan, make some practical and rigorous suggestions as to um, what they might be. So let me summarise the major, the three major issues we highlighted in the report. Um, problems with access and equity, service shortages and a failure of coordination. Uh, first, let me turn to access and equity. If you're not belt billed, uh, going to the GP and filling a script can quickly cost you $75 uh, in out-of-pocket costs. On average, out-of-pocket costs for a visit, visit to a specialist, if you get a referral to a specialist, will cost you a further $75. And if you need to see a psychologist or a physiotherapist or any other allied health service, the average further cost is another $40 out-of-pocket if you're not bulk billed. 
So this becomes um, significant for uh, those people who aren't bulk build and can cause genuine hardship for a proportion of people. And a number of those people, probably slightly less than 10%, will delay services or don't use them because of cost uh, in, our, in our primary care services. But at least Medicare and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme provide a rebate that partially covers these services uh, and this isn't the case for dental services. Uh, if you're an adult and you need dental care, a, regu a regular checkup and clean will cost you over $100 and fillings over $150. For adults, you or your private health insurance pay for primary dental care. Not surprisingly, 40% of people on low incomes delay or don't go to the dentist when they need to. A third of adults have untreated uh, tooth decay as a result of our uh, access problems for dental care. For people who can't afford private dental care, state governments provide public dental services, but service shortages mean that the wait for uh, public dental can often be longer than a year. Uh, and that causes very significant difficulties for people on low incomes. Other primary and specialist community health services are also in short supply. Medicare-funded health and specialist medical services are much more difficult to get in rural and remote areas. State-funded services like alcohol and drug, <coughs> mental health and community health have capped budgets, and when money runs out, people have to wait, and that causes... Um, significant concern for those people. The availability of women's health, including sexual and reproductive health, is highly variable across the country uh, and underdeveloped. In New South Wales and Queensland, abortion is still a criminal offence. Uh, as a result, it can be difficult to get um, basic contraception, let alone termination services, as has been highlighted in Tasmania uh, in recent times. For the 20% of people with complex conditions, including chronic diseases like diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, neurological conditions, and so on, the, <coughs> and including frail older people as well, coordination of their services in the community is a serious issue. More than a quarter of this group say that no health professional helped them coordinate services. Um, these people often see a number of health professionals who provide care and treatment independently of one another, and often communication problems occur as a result of that set of um, relationships that they have. The most usual form of coordination is referral with only limited agreement about treatment, planning and monitoring of progress between the professionals that people see. In the community, professionals rarely operate as, integrated, as an integrated team across agencies for people with complex needs. Uh, so the usual process is a referral letter and then the next person provides treatment and occasionally there may be feedback uh, to the original referrer as to how things are going, but the concept of them working together as a team with, with the sort of parameters that you'd normally expect is rare. Worse, most chronic and complex care is actually self-managed. So most of us who have chronic and complex conditions manage, manage them ourselves. But there's almost no emphasis and support for self-management in primary care for 
chronic and complex conditions. I'm sure that many of you um, will have had conversations over dinner or a drink that have turned to problems in sorting out um, care and treatment snafus for relatives and friends uh, with complex care needs. And even experienced health professionals, and many of you probably are, uh, know that, uh, who know the system well have had a frustrating time getting the right care at the right time in the right place for people that you care about or for yourselves. So our primary and health services work well for people who are comparatively affluent, healthy and <coughs> not poor uh, and who don't have a complex set of ongoing health problems and don't live in rural areas. Um, fundamentally, these problems reflect the policy and jurisdictional fragmentation between the Commonwealth and the states. Theoretically, the Commonwealth is responsible for primary care. In practice, the states continue to have a significant responsibility for funding, organising and regulating services. In our report, we have argued that it's time for the Commonwealth and the state governments to negotiate and implement a comprehensive national primary health policy framework to address the fundamental and organisational shortfalls. I want to come back to that framework in, at, toward the end of my um, presentation tonight, but before I do I want to reflect a little on the broader issues for planning and developing primary care services. Primary care is often idealised through characters like AJ Cronin's Scottish country GP Angus Cameron uh, in Dr Findlay's casebook, for those of you who recall, and uh, or more recently Martin Ellingham as Doc Martin in um, the BBC uh, series, and uh, <coughs> the austere blood-phobic Martin um, Ellingham, I might add. Um, the Australian Dr Blake mysteries nod in that general direction, although in a crime fiction genre. These portrayals of close-knit rural communities with community-minded, skilled, if slightly idiosyncratic, paternalistic GPs committed to providing comprehensive birth-to-death care supported by families, their friends and the local community are the feature of these kinds of um, fictional portrayals. And for the fictional communities of Tannock Bray and Port Wen in those, uh, BB, uh, in those English series, um, hospitals are a distant, otherly presence only to be used as a last resort. It's the GP and the local community, sometimes including somewhat odd police officers, who solve the problems, um, for those of you who watch Doc Martin. Um, the audience is encouraged to believe in these idealised communities where primary care in the form of the local GP prevents and treats illness and disease and helps people to live full and healthy lives. The reality, of course, for most people today is life is very different from these idealised communities. Over the past three generations, participation in the workforce has dramatically increased, particularly for women. Our physical mobility has increased. We're much more likely to commute longer distances to work from where we live. Children are much more likely to live away from um, their parents in other cities. Family size has shrunk and family relationships are much more diverse than they were in the past. More broadly in Australia, we live in a highly urbanised post-industrial society that prioritises productive, adaptable and flexible workers and consumers over engaged, participating citizens and community members. And to make the post-industrialised work <coughs> world possible, we 
have professionalised and outsourced family and community responsibilities to the welfare state. So a plethora of services has filled the gaps left in the community, childcare, home and community care, community mental health, alcohol and drug services, community disability services are all in place now. There's been an enormous expansion of these services over the last three generations. Although these services are provided locally, they answer to centralised departments of education, health, welfare and human services, which have grown incre increasingly larger and more powerful and more controlling over that period of time. The state and the market have become the dominant have become dominant and civil society and community relationships that go with them have diminished. Increasingly, the state has sought to control primary and community services through what is generally considered new public management. And this has seen the introduction of a number of business practices to run local community-based primary care and community services. Most of you who work in these agencies know the tools pretty well. They include agency-based funding and service agreements, item schedules, performance indicators, reporting arrangements, accreditation and auditing requirements. These are determined centrally by state and Commonwealth departments with nodding usually token input from a plethora of nevertheless required agency level needs studies and strategic plans. There's a whole industry out there in needs studies. Um, and um, the reality of those is that they're often uh, nodded at and not much used in the actual delivery of services while the central requirements actually drive what services need to do through those funding and service agreements. Often individual divisions of the one department will adopt different arrangements from the same agency. Uh, Commonwealth and state departments will often fund the same things in different ways with different requirements. As new managerialism has spread, a vast number of small non-government and privately owned organisations are subject to an increasingly com uh, complex, inconsistent set of centrally determined funding and performance arrangement with little actual local planning and coordination going on between those agencies. Not surprisingly, the model has led to discontent amongst the locals. There are complaints about insecure funding, burdensome and inconsistent administrative and reporting arrangements, sometimes called red tape. Um, and detailed operational requirements about where money can and can't be spent and how services have to be provided, determined centrally. Um, it's not hard to get a conversation going about some of the amazing centralised stuff-ups ranging from operational requirements for centralised intake systems that don't work through to complex funding formula that no one really understands and uh, reporting arrangements that are way too complex for the amount of money which is actually being allocated. Um, not surprisingly, there are strong arguments that more managerialism and central control are not solving the problems of integration, coordination and responsiveness to local community circumstances for these primary care and community services. Most notably, criticisms point to the failures um, uh, of centralisation and fragmentation in leading to the failure to prevent a range of conditions poor health outcomes that occur, particularly for people with complex um, conditions, and unnecessary use of more intensive services like hospitals. Now, in response, I'm not going to argue for a return to some halcyon ideal of bucolic local communities like those of Dr Finlay and Martin. Um, localism and community control have their own challenges. But we appear to have the balance between local and central control wrong. Um, 
if we're going to address the emerging challenges for primary and community services. Interestingly, there's now, a, of course, a general acceptance that fragmentation and discontinuity are a problem. Integration and coordination and the patient-centred journey are heavily in vogue. No primary care report, including ours, or planning document or tender submission is complete without mentioning integration, coordination, and um, the prevention of unnecessary services like um, uh, potentially preventable hospitalisations. But so far, with some faltering steps, including the establishment firstly of divisions of general practice, then Medicare locals, and then primary health networks, the solution has been pretty much more of the same. Uh, that is, we will have more managerialism through those arrangements to try to get you to solve these problems. Internationally, there are a number of examples where the balance between central and local control has been considered. So people are starting to think about this. What is the right balance between central and local? And the UK, for example, has introduced regional sustainability transform and transformation plans for regions. Um, new forms of primary care organisation, including general practice networks, are being considered as part of these uh, changes. So new forms of services are emerging. New Zealand has, of course, established district health authorities and primary health organisations, and Australians regularly make the trip across the ditch to see the New Zealand model in action, and we keep stealing things from New Zealand at the moment, like health pathways and so on. Um, <coughs> in Australia, there are a number of initiatives being pursued by state governments, interestingly enough, who are trying to deal with these issues. And it will be, for example, interesting to see the outcomes of the, sustainability health, uh, the Sustainable Health Review in Western Australia, which is ongoing at the moment, which is trying to struggle with these issues. So back to our report, as I promised earlier, we have argued uh, for, for a national policy framework and agreement between the Commonwealth and the states for primary care and community services. And we're really arguing that the Commonwealth and the states need to get their act together and recognise that this is a renovator's opportunity and that they need to bring some consistency in their planning frameworks and their policy frameworks to try to actually deal with these issues rather than papering over them, as most of the bilateral agreements which have been negotiated so far have done. They've mainly just collected together what's already happening, put them into the one document and said, there you go, it's a bilateral agreement trying to deal with these issues rather than actually sitting down and saying, okay, what do we really need to do to try and fix the problems? What we're proposing is that a policy framework would establish the aims and objectives for primary care, the overall funding levels and the overall accountability arrangements between the Commonwealth and the states. And then that the agreements um, which are negotiated would allocate governance and performance management to appropriate regional bodies like primary health networks, which would be responsible for, Commonwealth, for the Commonwealth and the states, uh, to the Commonwealth and the states for the performance of primary and community services in their regions. We recognise that those PHNs are yet to develop fully to be able to uh, become um, successful organisations in that space, but we have a view that they are probably the only game in town at the moment. Um, in terms of making that work. Primary health networks would be responsible for developing appropriate arrangements between primary and community care agencies to put in place responsive, efficient and effective services for local communities. PHNs would be responsible for agreed outcomes with much less centralised operational control. So there needs to be a framework to allow them to operate, but then they need to be allowed to actually be responsive to local conditions. 
If this were to occur, it's highly likely, in my view anyway, that new forms of service organisation would be negotiated between GPs, pharmacists, specialists, hospitals, allied health and community health and support services to improve access, prevention and service integration. That might include um, new kinds of networks between GPs or collaboratives or collaborations um, and other agencies, the establishment of more multi-disciplinary um, based services, uh, the arrangement of new virtual team arrangements, um, the inclusion of digital platforms which otherwise are very difficult to put in place. But they have to be brokered. Uh, asking agencies to bring those together on their own is very difficult to do. So that's the, that would be the sort of thing that PHNs might well do if they were given a broader mandate um, to achieve those sorts of outcomes. Now, primary health networks are, of course, not the only possible solution to balancing localism and centralism, nor are they yet fully developed. Uh, it's likely that governance arrangements for primary health networks would need to be uh, strengthened and engagement with and consultation with local communities would need to be um, reconsidered. Some elements of that are in place already through what are called uh, clinical councils and community councils. Um, and uh, I think they would need stronger operational um, cap capability uh, to address these issues into the future. But, as I say, they are probably the only option at the moment for us to see this sort of redevelopment occur. Let me conclude then by saying that however imperfectly our report was, it's an attempt to map these issues and provide some thought for discussion and further work. And we offer it as a step along the way. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Hal. There'll be an opportunity for questions, comment, and dem demolition of his uh, ideas uh, later on. It's now my pleasure to welcome Mandy Kenny. Mandy is Professor of Rural Health at La Trobe University's Bendigo campus. Uh, she originally, she still is a nurse, uh, but has been working in rural, rural Victorian communities uh, for a long time. She's also on the board of the ed deputy editor of an international nursing journal, so she gets a international perspective as well. Mandy. Thanks, Hello, everybody. How are you? I'm at that terrible age where if I put my glasses on, I can't see you, and if I take them off, I can't see what I've got written here. I'm sure there's some people that can um, uh, that understands that. I too want to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land of the beautiful city of Melbourne. I want to pay my respects to elders past, present, and I guess the group that I'm most passionate about, the emerging leaders. As Stephen said, my name is Amanda Kenny, and I'm the Violet Marshman Professor of Rural Health. I live in the absolutely beautiful city of Bendigo, gorgeous Goldfields Place, if you haven't been there. But I spend much of my time in rural communities as a researcher, a health professional, I'm a nurse and a midwife, and I'm director of a small rural health service. I want to thank Hal and Stephen for inviting me to talk. 
Both of them have been really highly influential in my career, and I feel really honoured to be here tonight to talk to you. When I was asked to speak, I pondered what I might have to say. I haven't discussed the content with Hal and Stephen, so I feel like I have a bit of a free range of what I want to talk about, and I can see Hal already rolling his eyes. Stephen whispered to me, as long as you don't say that Grattan Institute's hopeless. Now, of course, I wouldn't say that um, because um, I use many of um, the fantastic reports in my own teaching. So what I want to do is just talk for a little while about the things that I'm passionate about. And what I want to send you home with is really an understanding of the context in which I work. I will challenge some of the um, comments um, or some of the writings in the report, but really not to disagree, but to actually say, particularly in the rural context, they've been far too kind. So what I want to start by saying is Australia has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. I was in Banff just recently at a conference and one of my colleagues from the UK gave a keynote address and he was halfway through it and he just broke down in tears and the whole audience just sort of went, what? And he had some images of his son that had been in a car accident in Mumbai. He'd been up on a um, balcony had fallen backwards, but not only had he fallen, he'd then been um, run over by a car and suffered really serious injuries. And what Brian did was he showed some images. He was talking about the failures of the NHS in England, but he was really making the point that we can complain about our health system, but his experience of his son in this very, very, um, you know, I just looked at it and thought, oh my God, trying to care for anybody in that context in Mumbai really make us think how lucky we are. If you are acutely ill, you experience a life-threatening illness or suffer major trauma, there are few places in the world that you would wish to be other than Australia. But if you are poor, old, mentally ill, have complex and chronic conditions and live in a rural community, your experience of the health system is often substandard. I'm not suggesting it's like Mumbai, but I'm going to give you a couple of stories as I go through my talk to give you some context. Helen Stevens' report provides an excellent summary of the primary healthcare system in Australia. They describe what good quality primary care by international standards looks like but they state that we can do so much better. In the rural context, I argue that we can do a whole lot better. We have the catch cry, and Hal used it, of the right care in the right place at the right time. And the catch cry is often about locally responsive care. But I believe that we are failing to provide even a reasonable standard of primary care in many rural communities. And hopefully, I'll give you some examples that illustrate that. Helen Stevens state that primary health policy is a renovator's opportunity. My view is that in the rural context, we have a system that worked okay 40 years ago, but the needs of those seeking primary care have changed. 
I would argue that Hal and Stephen haven't been strong enough in the rural context. I argue that it's beyond renovation. We need serious disruption. The system needs pulling down and rebuilding. And what I want you to focus on is what I'm going to say now. And that is, we need that rebuilding of the health system supervised by those who actually use the system. They're the people that know the flaws in the system. Not me, who might sit in my office in Bendigo, but when you get out into rural communities and you hear what it's like to navigate the system when you're old, poor, I can't navigate the system, so what hope do some people have? I really enjoyed pouring through the numerous statistics evident within Hal and Stephen's report. It is important to measure progress using statistics and key indicators, but behind these statistics are people that can often be hidden by claims that targets have been met. I often tell the story of a woman that I encountered in my research on service access in rural communities. I just want you to think about this story and think about how you would feel. Her husband came home from work one night and it was clear that there was something really wrong with him. After a couple of days of manic, totally out of character behaviour, he went off with a friend on a fishing trip. He had no prior history of any mental health problems. The next his wife heard, he had been admitted to a regional psychiatric facility. She got a call to say your husband is now in a psych centre. After weeks of inpatient care, his wife received the call to say he was ready to leave. He could come home. Her description was that he was turfed out with his suitcase. When she asked what happens now, she was told simply to make an appointment with her GP. She got back into that small community and the GP was terrific at managing her husband's medications, but suggested that she should seek support from somewhere else with a lot more expertise in mental health. The woman needed support with a myriad of things. One of her biggest worries was she had teenage daughters that were saying, this has happened to dad, is it now gonna to happen to me? And she didn't know what response to give those young people. After numerous calls, she finally reached an agency who said they could help. But they were currently recruiting and would call her back when they employed someone. She was a really bright, intelligent school teacher, but she said a year later she was still waiting for that call. She pointed, and this was really poignant, and it's why I often tell this story, because she pointed to the carving knives sitting on the bench, and she said, every night I wonder whether I should lock those away. I was challenged on that, this story by a regional CEO who claimed that the story I told was simply anecdotal and that the regional health services were doing well with their discharge targets. But when I talked to staff, the CEO was so proud of those targets. But on the grass level, when I talked to psych nurses and told them that story, their comment was, what discharge planning? Exactly 
what she had told me. We send them out. We don't do great discharge planning. They're sent home to their GP, who often doesn't have the skills to be able to manage. For the woman in that tiny community, she felt that she had been totally let down by a system that failed to care. It is a travesty that many Australians can't attend a GP when they need to. How much you pay for care depends on where you live. Funding models are not designed to encourage allied health and nursing expertise. As Hal said, if you have a complex or chronic condition, integrated and comprehensive care is almost non-existent, particularly in the rural context. Much of the data that we make major policy decisions on and funding, um, we organise funding around that data, is either absent, it's poor quality or it's one-dimensional. Decision-making is often driven by assumptions that people's needs are the same across geographically diverse areas. Rural people do not have the same healthcare access as their metropolitan counterparts. But people in one rural place are not the same as another. Rural areas are often portrayed similar terms to what Hal described as bucolic, romanticised places with the idea that rural people look after each other. But the message I want to convey to you is rural communities are changing. The enormous cost of living in metropolitan cities, meaning many vulnerable people are being pushed out of places like Melbourne, and they're hundreds of kilometres from where their care base was. An older woman told me recently how their move to a small rural community had been hard. They had their roof stoned by local kids and they attracted abuse because their son with a mental illness was viewed as a monster in that town. Stigma was rife in that community, but they could no longer afford to live in Melbourne, so they had to go out to a tiny community with little support. Even within, if you have grown up in a rural area, I spoke to a mum recently who said that if her daughter had cancer, everyone would arrive with casseroles, but her daughter had a mental illness, so the family was avoided. Health outcomes and life expectancy for Indigenous people are appalling, but I encourage you to also look at the health outcomes and life expectancy for people with serious and enduring mental illness. They're shameful, particularly in rural areas, and should not be tolerated in a wealthy country like Australia. It is a disgrace that about 60% of little kids start school with cavities in their teeth. In a wealthy country like Australia, I rang our professor of dentistry just before I come to check that figure to make sure I had that right. And Mark said, yes, measuring cavities, we're at about 60%, but that hides the teeth that haven't yet got cavities in them, but that, that will um, cavitate at some point. In the communities that I work with, the rates are much higher as many communities have no fluoride in their water and the cost of accessing a dentist, even if you could find one, is beyond a family's budget. At times, I've had to seriously remind myself that I'm living in a wealthy, privileged country. 
In a recent project, I spent time with the Flying Doctors and their great school dental service. So I was out in a little community and I was totally shocked. I went home really upset that little kid after little kid was wanting me to look in their mouth and see their fillings. They were really proud of them. And when I talked to the dentist, the rates of anaesthetics given to small children only two hours north of here, you know, were really a national disgrace, the fact that we're extracting um, teeth out of five-year-olds in a wealthy country like Australia. A couple of years ago, we visited Glasgow, a place that has traditionally seen some of the worst health outcomes across a large range of indicators. We spent time with oral therapists and the modern-day apprentices, people learning on the job. What they were doing, they were spending a couple of minutes cost a pound to paint fluoride on the teeth of little kids in schools. So the whole school would have fluoride brushed on their teeth. And they were showing marked improvements in oral health outcomes for that population. In the communities that I work in, it seems that we would simply prefer to fill the teeth of five-year-olds than have um, a, you know, a prevention um, program around cavities. Personally, I find the lack of a properly funded universal dental system a major failing of primary care. If I live in inner Melbourne and need to access a GP practice, Hal talked about the, um, the, um, the GP practices that don't bulk bill, but if you live in Melbourne, you can probably find a bulk billing service somewhere in your neighbourhood if you need to. But I have no choice but to avoid a GP visit. So I'm lucky, I can access, but many people can't because I can't find the money to fund the out-of-pocket expenses. In many of our communities, people with serious mental illness, people who are poor and old, are paying significant co-payments. Now, I'm not at all bagging the doctors because I also think that the Medicare rebate is out of step with what it actually costs to deliver services. But we've got a major problem here when people are having to make um, large contributions. Stephen would know the one that I ranted about many years ago in my PhD is that if I attend the emergency department of a major metropolitan health service, my visit is essentially free at the point of service. Many of you know that you would go to the emergency department and you wouldn't pay. If I'm sick, and I attend the urgent care service of a small rural hospital, I will usually receive a bill with a co-payment that will vary between town to town. So we have often the sickest, the most vulnerable, the most disadvantaged people needing to pay the most amount of money at a geographic distance from major towns. Navigating a complicated health system is made much more complex when you live in a rural area. And it's for many people, it's an insurmountable challenge. Our healthcare system is far from seamless. Many of us become frustrated telling the same story to multiple health professionals over and over again. I have four degrees and a PhD, but when I'm sick or my family are, trying to navigate the health system nearly does my head in. I'm not sure about you, but I cannot do it. 
Can you imagine if you are 85 and you live in the lovely town of Bort with a population of 1,200 and read the paper last week that reported that the town's only medical clinic is set to close on November the 1st? That was in the newspapers a week ago. So the town of Bort at this point will be left with no doctor. Helen Stevens state that most Australians want to live at home as they age rather than in an institution, but supports to do this in rural communities are almost non-existent. I had a recent personal experience with a friend who is a nurse practitioner. So nurse practitioners are um, you know, the most highly skilled health professionals or some of them that we have in this country. Her mum had advanced dementia and the family had done a fabulous job of moving their mum from Melbourne to provide her care. Seeing a friend brought to her knees and the depths of despair after being given the total runaround as she tried to navigate the primary care system was distressing, but really demonstrates just how bad it is, even when you are a highly skilled professional. Sue and I did laugh about her experience in trying to access a dementia program for her mum. There's something a little bit funny about that this, but it just makes you shake your head. She was sent from organisation to organisation. She spent hours on the phone. Finally, through sheer persistence, she got on to a day program for dementia. What she was looking for, they were trying to work, they had a 17-year-old girl trying to go to school, and all they needed was a little bit of respite. That's all they wanted in the day where Ma could go and be safe. The person to the, at the dementia service was very nice, but asked Sue whether her mum wandered. wandered. Sue said, yes, she does. She has dementia. The answer was, I'm sorry, but we have no capacity to have wandering people in our dementia program. Sue desperately persevered, but in the end, their only suggestion of the numerous places she tried was that perhaps she should seek counselling for herself because she appeared to be not coping. I could tell you the story after story about the failures of the primary care system in rural Australia. I spend much of my time in these communities hearing about the experiences of real people. The statistics are important, but the stories that sit behind those statistics provide a powerful reminder that we can do so much better. I'm in no way suggesting that there are not good people, good programs and good services in rural communities. Rather, I argue that the system works against those good people, good programs and good services. Many rural health services continue to be little more than scaled down versions of metropolitan counterparts or aged care facilities with a few tacked on acute beds. Funding models are largely um, state-based and much of the attention is on the delivery of acute health care. I mean, again, in no way suggesting that high quality and safe acute care in rural health services is not important, but I believe that a much higher level of focus should be placed on the role of small rural health services in primary care. Decisions and plannings by boards. I'm a director at um, the fantastic, we've won the Premier's um, health, Small Health Service of the Year Award twice now at Rural Northwest in Warwick-Nabeel. But often our decision and planning is made by guessing as there's no high quality data because the numbers are too small to report 
or they are measures that are relevant to the board of a major metro hospital, not a small rural one. Even when population health data is presented to boards, it is usually not fine-grained enough to target local interventions, and ill-informed decisions could be made based on LGA local government area data, Victorian or rural data, the assumption that all rural people are the same. There needs to be a dramatic reconsideration of the structure and form of the health workforce. Despite this notion of interprofessional care, we continue to educate students largely in single discipline silos. In my own discipline of nursing, the majority of time spent in a nursing program is preparing students for acute hospitals. Little time is spent on primary care and the key skills of health coaching and supporting self-management for those with chronic conditions. Helen Stephen highlight the role of GPs as coordinators of care and their role in health promotion education. I would question whether this is the best use of GPs' time. We have these totally crazy models of funding that directly work against care coordination and health promotion. I've had many GPs talk to me about practice incentive payments. They have argued that from an economic perspective, the amount of money made from PIP payments and the amount of effort that needs to go in is not worth the effort. You can make more money by just increasing throughput. More people you go through without all of the, um, the complex complexity that uh, exists around PIP payments. We need to look at service navigation roles to support people to navigate the primary care system. And when I talk about service navigation, I was talking to somebody about this earlier today, many of the service navigation roles are um, really, uh, they're often health professionals. I would argue that the best service navigators are people who have tried to navigate the system themselves. The problem is though that when we do actually um, put in place um, people like peer navigators to help people navigate the system, they're often volunteers, they're not paid, they don't have formal roles, but they have a wealth of experience and knowledge. I want to finish by really just talking about there is little doubt that we have some of the world's best minds trying hard to shift the focus from acute medical care to preventative health. But who are the real experts in our health system and whose views are most needed to drive primary care improvements? The real experts who should be central to rebuilding primary care are those people who try to navigate the system every day. Our response to harnessing their expertise is largely focused on the tokenistic consumer on an advisory committee. The term co-design is now being thrown around as the latest buzzword. But as someone so eloquently put it on Twitter in the last few days, co-design is not locking three people in a room as token consumers with butcher's paper or sticky notes. I argue that we need to work with people who actually use the services because they will actually come up with the most amazing innovative solutions to the best way to actually be able to navigate and to get the sort of care that they need. We must think differently about primary care. We must engage experts in primary care design. These experts must be people who have lots of experience of the challenges inherent in the current system. The people who actually use the system. 
Without real co-design, without really working with people and major disruption, we will continue to patch up a system that it's well past its use-by date. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. So thank you very much, everybody. Um, we've now got some time for questions. Uh, we've, had we've had two quite provocative speeches um, that have uh, talked about the renovator's opportunity. I now want uh, now over to you. I'll just give you one factoid on the rural-urban issue. I've been looking recently at amenable mortality. This is mortality uh, that uh, is able to be affected by the healthcare system or by public health and preventable uh, interventions. And so I looked at the rate of amenable mortality in metropolitan Melbourne, about 80 per 100,000 I think it is, in non-metropolitan Victoria, outside the Melbourne metropolitan area, it's about 120, so it's about 50% higher in terms of the death rate from conditions that can be affected by the healthcare system. And that's uh, an interesting difference in the, uh, in the outcomes of the service that Mandy has described. Questions, please. And could you say your name and if you're affiliated with an organisation where you're from? Any questions? None, so you all agree with, uh, with what Mandy and so orange over there, that's you. Orange, is it pink? What colour do you think it is? Thank you. Um, I'm Carol and I'm from an organisation in Tasmania currently. Um, I'm just picking up on your point about PHNs perhaps being the best vehicles for progressing improvement in primary care but that currently the level of, for the want of a better word, sophistication or maturation around that is problematic. So I'm interested in whether you think advancing their role should proceed on the basis of all PHNs, all issues, all Australians, or whether it might be better served by things like an issues approach, a health issue approach, a population approach, or perhaps because as I said, I'm from Tasmania, looking at a PHN where a state that has one PHN, one state government, one tertiary referral centre, and seeing what can happen with the lack of complexity that exists around that. That's a very good question. The, um, uh, you like to declare conflict of interest? Uh, sure, I am on the board of a PHN. Um, <coughs> the, um, but let's... Um, but my general comment would be that uh, PHNs vary. Maybe hold it closer to you. Yeah. PHNs vary uh, significantly in their um, level of development, and uh, they also vary significantly across the country, depending on the state, uh, in terms of their relationships with one another and with the state. So Tasmania, for example, has one, and so does the. Um, Northern Territory and the OCT, and um, you end up with different arrangements. Uh, so the experiment in Tasmania would be quite a good idea in terms of um, seeing a one 
uh, one PHN with one state to allow that coordination with the Commonwealth's responsibilities. And I think that agreements have been negotiated to allow that to happen. Uh, there's an interesting model in WA emerging where all of the PHNs are basically in a collective. One organisation represents them. Uh, and that's a very good model. Victoria is still behind in that. Queensland and New South Wales is trying to find their way forward. Victoria is negotiating um, an agreement with the state government on a limited basis. So I think it will be necessary to allow different models to emerge in different places depending on the circumstances and the competencies of the PHN. Um, I think that the difficulty that I have with PHNs is that, as Hal described, they went from um, divisions of general practice to Medicare locals to PHNs. And I think that um, my experience of the many that I have interacted with, there's still not clarity around their uh, core focus and purpose. I think that um, for me, their primary focus should be on care coordination. But we still do see PHNs delivering services. Um, the rhetoric that you hear is that they only deliver services where there's service gaps. But I've seen where services have been duplicated in areas and a competitive situation comes up. And I always question sort of issues around probity in that area. I think the other thing was, I was at um, PICRIS, the conference last week, and what struck me there was that there were these amazingly enthusiastic project workers all doing presentations from the PHN. But they were really very small, very um, um, poorly designed, probably too hard, but really small scale, not a strong focus on outcomes. And it really made me think that they're not research organisations either. They should be partnering with researchers to actually do something with some of the great large data sets that they had. But it was, yeah, it, it just felt like an opportunity loss because I think there is that, that idea we're not clear about what their core purpose and focus is. Thank you. Peter? Um, so I'm Peter McNair. I'm from the Victorian Agency for Health Information and the Department of Health and Human Services. But uh, these are my opinions and don't reflect either the agency, those of the agency or the department. Standard disclaimer. Uh, so it seems pretty hard to talk about primary care reform and not talk about personal health record and not talk about telemedicine. If you look at my health record as, as the first thing you do, hold it you closer know, to you. Sorry, hold it closer to you. I'll hold it closer to me. Uh, if you if you think about overseas where there's a personal health record that follows the patient, and so when the the clinician puts the the notes in with the patient, you know there's a a, a, a payment raised, the patient actually has the capacity to go into that record and get their script renewal, get their referral, get a range of things remotely. And then around telemedicine, where telemedicine is capable of managing at least 90% of, of urgent care, it would seem that that would be the beginning to solving some of our issues around remoteness and certainly a lot of the issues that we have around fragmentation where the information is owned by the practitioner and not owned by the patient. 
Yeah. I'll probably pick up on the um, telemedicine, and I'd prefer to use the term telehealth, because I think when we talk about telemedicine, it makes people think just about doctors. I think that telehealth has been promoted as almost a panacea for rural communities. Where it works well is when there is a care coordinator or a practitioner on the other end with the person. You know, it's not enough just to sit somebody in a room with a medico on the screen at a distance. So I think we need um, models and funding to support that because once the, um, you know, the person who may be three hours away from the health professional finishes that consultation, you need somebody to pick that up and, you know, particularly to be able to support and navigate where they go from then. I think the um, health record one's a really interesting one. Um, I was in Hong Kong, uh, well, my son's over here and he's 25, and when he was a little boy, um, we um, spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, and what intrigued me there was that all of the health information on the little cards, they were carrying them in their pockets. And what we saw, which was really interesting, was um, they had a lot of health clinics. Um, so they were um, using all the tech that they have in Hong Kong, where um, older people were taking their own blood pressure and they were weighing themselves and they were putting their cards in and checking. And I was just intrigued by how much ownership um, they had of their health information. And, you know, I was talking to some people in the health service where they were saying, people will come in and say, oh, well, my blood pressure's down this month. I must have been doing something right. So I think the idea of um, I think what's really important with the health record stuff for me is that people also have ownership of their own data because I do think it can help with encouraging them to make improvements in their own healthcare as well. Next question. A, a, a thing should turn up shortly. Did you have it somewhere else? Sorry. Uh, Philip Hegarty, is that close enough? is my name. I'm a general practitioner and I've been involved currently in general practice training and previously have been involved in divisions of general practice in the College of GPs. And I just want to make a few observations and comments. First of all, coordinating care where there is no care to coordinate is and has been for the last 50 years a waste of time. So unless there's more money on the table to deliver services, you end up then with this whole managerial approach about how you get the most bang for the minimum, minimum number of bucks that you've got to spend. Or you create a new bureaucracy, such as divisions of general practice or, let, dare I say, PHNs. So you can get caught up in trying to make the pie cut better when really the real problem is making the pie bigger. And the other thing is that what is the solution for the healthcare needs in Melbourne is different to what is the solution in rural Victoria. And the factoid you gave really is the summary of that that if you're going to start spending money, spend it in rural Victoria first, work out what works and fund it properly. And the second thing is that dental is a massive black hole, half of the problem we don't even know about. And until we deal with dental and rural, we could, we could have reports and talks, and I've been involved in all sorts of committees and reports for, for 20 years. And at the end of the day, nothing actually changes because there's no money to change it. And whilst we talk about spending $16 billion to have a railway to the airport for people who live in Melbourne, 
and not spend money for rural Victoria, we'll be having the same discussion today as, as we're having today in 20 years' time. So somehow we need to find a political party or political willpower or something to actually change things to get money that will make a difference in the areas of need. And once you've dealt with dental and rural, you've got mental health, drug and alcohol, Aboriginal health, etc. But without money, nothing will actually change. Thank you. I, I'll take that as a comment, and I agree with a lot of it. Early in my career, I worked in the Victorian Health Department, and we had a number of services which did assessment, and they loved doing assessment, but there were no services to refer these people to after the assessment. It was just exactly what you're talking about, but a different version. Next question, please. Over there on the right, or my right, anyway. Thank you, Jan Donovan. I'm on a community council of the PHN and I'd like to come back to Amanda's comments Closer. On, on the PHNs uh, because I think they are, as you outline in your excellent report, they're going to be very important if we're going to have change. Um, I agree with the clarity of purpose. I think um, I'd like to know what Hal thinks and Stephen thinks about what we can do to um, uh, give more strength to community councils to get a clear a clarity of purpose for them because I think there are genuine users of services on those councils but they don't have real input into governance at the moment. There's no requirement for the governance structure of PHNs to have the users of the services on the governance structure so they're kind of a token group at the moment what can we do about that? That's the first question. The second question is funding. The PHNs are getting most of the mental health funding for primary care, and I know it's a lot less than the um, hospital system gets, but it is a way of coordinating care to get that right for people with mental illness. Could you all comment on that too? Uh. So take the first comment on um, consumer participation. I think Mandy made the comment in her, in her speech that um, the, uh, often it's tokenistic and, um, and I commented that need studies are often a problem because they don't really drive um, service change or what you're going to do. So if you're going to really be serious about uh, community participation and engagement, then you really have to see... Um, in part that that communities are political or ha have political agendas and that you, you need to set up governance arrangements where you allow uh, the key community leaders to become the, uh, the people who are actually consulted about directions as well as the consumers. So consumers have a voice which is often very, which is very important but Actually, the way change occurs is by giving community leaders more of a say in what's, what the services need to be, and those community leaders need to be accountable back to their communities through some political process. And that's how everything else works, so that needs to work in, in uh, these kinds of organisations as well. In terms of... So I, I think if you, if you really want uh, to see a change occurring in that space, then you have to have a, a, a much greater emphasis on... Um, uh, engaging with community leaders uh, as well as with consumers. The, uh, the second point that, I, that you raised was the question of uh, resources, and that goes to your point too. Uh, part of the issue is 
yes, there's always an issue about more money, but part of the issue is, be, is reallocating the existing money in more sensible ways. One of the things the Productivity Commission, for example, has recently recommended is that perhaps 2%, 3% of activity-based funding in the acute care sector be reconsidered for reallocation on a sensible basis back into the primary care system. Uh, the, the West Australians are thinking about that, but in order to do that, you have to have a competent um, organisation to contract with or to negotiate with, and that's where you then end up with, well, you can't do it with every general practice, so you have to have a broker in the system to do that, and that's where primary health networks then become the interesting thing. And then you do actually end up having to have different kinds of services than what we've currently got, because the services, as Mandy's pointed out, were designed about 50 or 60 years ago for a different kind of healthcare system. So I think the answer to that is we do need to see reallocation within the system occurring, but you have to have competent primary healthcare networks where people have confidence that this can be done. And that's starting to happen in various places. That's going to require contracts or agreements with state governments. And that's what's happening in Tasmania. There's negotiations in Western Australia. There's very preliminary negotiations in, in other states about that. We'll see where that goes. Um, I think um, the point that was made was that there are dramatic differences across PHNs, and many of them are functioning really highly. Um, I've had sort of experience with a couple of PHNs across large geographic regions, and what we've noticed is some bouncing around of funding. And so a service will be funded for a while, but just as you're getting traction, the funding will move to another. Um, and I think that's problematic. Um, the uh, you know, a lot of people would um, debate the corporatised medicine structure, but in our region, we were getting really good outcomes from nurse practitioners, mental health nurse practitioners in general practice. And uh, there really was starting to get some traction, and then the funding was changed to a different organisation. So you need a bit of stability in funding over a longer period of time to sort of and monitor those outcomes, rather than it just being moved uh, it appeared on a whim. So when I was in Alberta, we had a whole set of community councils around the province, and one of my performance indicators, I think I had 12 performance indicators, I forget some number, but one of them was based on a survey of community council members, did they think they were being listened to in the management and planning of the health service? So because my bonus depended in part on the answer to that question, and because every senior member of staff's bonus depended in part on my bonus, then that gave quite an interesting incentive on all the senior staff to be actually concerned about listening to community council people rather than just having them as a token. We've got time for one more question right up the back. No, do you have to? Here's the mic, the mic is on its way. That'll save my voice a little bit, thank you. Um, on, on that idea of relocation, given the geographic dispersion of the population in the country, do you, is there any merit in, in a, a two-tier system um, between metropolitan and rural funding, um, as opposed to having one system with bolt-ons to accommodate the rural issues? 
Um, maybe that's mine to answer. Uh, there, there already is quite different funding arrangements between metropolitan and rural. Uh, small rural hospitals, for example, are funded on a block grant basis, and so uh, they they can they have more freedom within that to allocate funding um, away from acute inpatient services. I think uh, the the issue I think in rural, in rural Victoria in particular, is that because we have we haven't got good coordination of funding between the acute hospital side and the other community health, alcohol and drug, mental health, palliative care, all of these other organisations or all of these other funding streams. And as Hal mentioned in his talk, we end up with um, what a friend of mine called the overburden of reporting. There's just so much uh, reporting and accountability and separate contracts and all these sorts of things that you can't truly get a coherent strategic thinking of, of what the healthcare provision and funding into a small community is because it's so atomised and different. I mean, it, it's not only in Victoria but in other places as well. So I think what our solution in, in the mapping report was is to have an overarching framework and then 31 separate contracts between tripartite contracts between Commonwealth State and PHNs to at least try and get some uh, coherence uh, at the PHN level and then hopefully that will flow down to a, a lower level as well. Um, Thank you very much, everybody, for coming at 7.15, which is the time we finish. Um, it's, uh, I enjoyed the two quite provocative speeches and the, and the good questions. Um, so thank you very much. And if you could thank Mandy and Hal again, please. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.